Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Simon spoke with American magazine writer Mei Jong. Mei spoke about her decision to go to Afghanistan just after she'd finished university, about why she was motivated to go and cover conflict and then to stop covering conflict, and also about her latest moves as she tries to write some fiction. Enjoy. So hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. This is a slightly different episode in that it's being recorded live in front of um, a modest audience uh, at Sturpo, which is a villa in Italy where I have had the great pleasure of co-hosting a writer's retreat this week with uh, an Italian art historian called Gianni Dubini. And very excitingly, um, one of the guests here, Mei Jong, has consented to be a guest on the podcast. Um, May, great to have you on. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. Um, can we go straight in with how you got to Afghanistan? Um, we're going to be talking about some of your reporting from there on the episode, but the how you, while still in your kind of early to mid-20s, right, ended up in, in Kabul. How did that come, come to pass? It was a long process of elimination, really. I graduated after the financial crisis and could not get a job that I wanted to, and uh it was, it was made pretty clear to me that the, the aspirational goals that I'd had when I was younger, growing up, reading newspapers in my teenage years in high school, those jobs were very quickly disappearing. And, if, and back then, the goal was still to become a foreign correspondent. And if I wanted to do that, the, the best way really would be to just figure it out on my own. Um, and so, so yeah, so I flew out. And what's been so curious to me is these categories that you've you people put you into and so m- the fact of my being in Kabul made me an expat but effectively the, I mean I was an economic migrant as well I was looking for jobs and so then that you know that that's the motivating force that got me to Kabul I'm going to push you on that though a bit because, like, there <laughs> please are, do there are other places you can go <laughs> to get mm-hmm. work than than Kabul can we can we roll back a bit so you'd, you'd grown up in Canada mm-hmm. and you'd done your your university studies there and so forth correct but how like did you know people in Afghanistan did you have a like connection what was the you know I'm gonna I'm gonna dry, dive into this a little bit because no go for it um why I mean did you want to cover conflict I mean, I think it's embarrassing to say, but probably, yes. I had a vague idea of wanting to do things that was far away. I remember um, a close friend of mine who I'm about to go visit in London, She, we were talking one day and we were talking about how we sort of collectively arrived at the conclusion that jealousy is actually a really wonderful thing. When you feel it, it tells you what you actually want. And I'd noticed that, and she detected it as well, that people that I felt envious towards were people who were like just living abroad. It wasn't even, it was a very broad category. So I knew that. Um, And so then in turn, that got me out of Canada working in um, Beirut, which is where I first went to do an internship at the Daily Star, the English language newspaper there. And I thought that this was this sort of incredible um, feat on my part. I'd sort of discover that this is a thing you could do. And then, of course, retroactively, I'd since learned that many people have done it. It's not original in any way. And um, yeah, and Afghanistan sort of made sense because I think I became, I was mentioning this to other people here, I started reading the newspaper and really sort of becoming engaged with what was happening in the wider world around the time when 9-11 happened, and that in turn meant I was reading uh, certain books, which then sort of dictated what kind of programs I applied for in college, which then determined what kind of professors I had, which then led to certain internships and you know other interests. And so it, I don't, I mean, it's arbitrary. It seems, it, we, uh, I think the reason I'd push is like, I know, mm. you know, I know lots of people who, who went abroad. Yeah. As a reporter, I did it myself. Yeah. Um, but relatively few, you know, who, who went to Afghanistan. I think it was a superlative was thing. Fired. It was You're like, right. a, what's the most extreme thing I can okay. do? I, I grew up, I think it, this is the case with, I think most people who sort of throw themselves into, um, such situations I think you sort of grew up reasonably comfortable and you're trying to offset that in some ways by um going the traveling the furthest distance going 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 to the place that is the most far the most far and um and I think that that those were my impulses but also I have to add another thing that we've been talking about this week is that it's very easy to articulate why you do simple things like why did you turn left on this road not right or why did you order whatever chicken not pork but I think with 
big decisions, sometimes it's really hard to articulate why you do things. Like, why do you fall in love with certain people? Why do you choose to devote the next five years of your life working on a PhD dissertation? These are things that are hard to quantify. So when did you arrive in Afghanistan? January, first week, January 2013. Oh, okay. And so we're going to talk about this Guardian long read that you did about the um, the fortune tellers, which I thought was really wonderful. Mm. But so that's that's like two years into your time there. Correct. So how did the process of kind of finding your feet um, professionally <laughs> and journalistically, but also just in learning how to operate in that environment in that maybe if we talk through that two year period, how did that work? I spent the first six months, I would say, reading all the things I read at most. I mean, up to that point, I'd read every single book that had ever been published on Afghanistan. And that came up that came from a place of real insecurity. I felt like I didn't know anything. How, how old were you say anything? Book? 24, 25. Okay. Um, I turned 25 there, I think. Um, so yeah, I, kn- I knew nothing. So then I was sort of trying to amass knowledge desperately. And I had a similar thing that we talked about earlier, which is the sense of um, not starting the thing you're meant to start because you want to arrive at a place that you feel comfortable with. But of course, you're never comfortable doing a new thing and so so yeah that's that's what happened and i think 2014 if i recall that's when the elections were 13 september 2013 um into the new year is when the elections were happening and elections we thought was going to be a quick and easy affair and of course it dragged out for many many months and i was writing covering the elections for the guardians i was doing daily news waking up every day. I think they had this exercise where they made me, I think I had to pitch a story a day, um, which is just How would you got in touch with the Guardian initially? For that? Um, expat community is really small. And so I think honestly, the first, the first sort of in was the actual Guardian correspondent was going on holiday and she needed someone to cover for her. Okay. So I did that. And then I think eventually she, she must, yeah, I think she left. And then I sort of inherited that gig along with like lawn furniture that she was trying to sure. get rid of. So when you, when you arrived, mm. you had clips from your experience in, in Beirut. Did you have other like professionally published stuff? No, I had nothing. I really, I mean, one good thing that I had done was that I'd worked at Reuters and, and that taught me that I don't want to work in a newswire. And then I'd work. Where were you doing that? Toronto, all right, Toronto, okay. uh, through school, during school, sorry. And and then I worked for our national newspaper, the Global Mail, that intern told, taught me that. These I, were internships or these were longer? Uh, traineeships, internships, so really, really basic sort of entry level okay. positions. And so then working at the newspaper taught me I don't want to work in a newspaper. And then um, actually this wonderful woman, who uh, Sarah Fulford, who was the editor-in-chief of a uh, little-known um, magazine, very influential in Toronto, called Toronto Life, which is the New York magazine equivalent of mm-hmm. in Canada. And she had given me uh, a lead, which I had then followed, which was a story about a gang rape scandal that happened in, a, in an immigrant community in, in Canada. And I had worked on that story for a year. Um, and so by the time I got to Afghanistan, I'd already had that experience. And had, that, it, had that run? had that run it had run and it was actually nominated for the canadian national magazine award so Uh, it sounds to me like actually you had a a kind of fair level of of experience before you went Mm, it seems that way on paper but really i had no idea what i was doing and but but i i I did know that i had this vague idea that what i wanted was to do magazine stories because i think it suited my temperament better And so all throughout, I, I knew that's what I event, that's where I wanted to arrive eventually. And how did you go about kind of learning to operate in Afghanistan, you know, learning to keep yourself safe and mm. things like that? Like so much of it was an osmosis, just right. learning from, you know, like going to dinner parties and um, because there are, are no real restaurants, you're eating at people's houses every every day and then you're hosting as well. So it's a real communal space and these same people you're going to, you know, embassy receptions with, and then you have yogurts together and then brunch. And so it's a real sort of summer camp feel. And the friends I've made in that time, it's it's like, it's, it's almost like dog years. I mean, they, they become quite good friends. And I just, I just kept, uh, I was just learning all throughout whatever it is that people were saying or books that were being recommended or, or what have you. Um, and were the, yeah. the kind of more uh, older members of the press corps, were they welcoming in general? It's funny, I, I haven't quite spoken publicly about this quite yet because I'm still formulating how I feel about it, but I think there was an element of, oh, you, you know, 
young writer shaped thing so sweet and then i think once i was started publishing big things yeah, yeah and then i think some people maybe felt that they didn't quite know how to um engage with me because right. we had a certain dynamic and that dynamic had been interrupted and it was unclear how it might go after okay and we always uh with everyone on the podcast try and speak about money um how did it work you know in these these early years in afghanistan were you able to because obviously these conflict cities can be very expensive as well were you able to support yourself no your i mean i made no money i think if i recall i think i made less than like ten thousand dollars the first year did that cover your costs no but i had savings because i i'd had jobs okay. in canada um and the great thing about a canadian education is that you go to school practically for free so i yeah. didn't have student debt and i hadn't really realized how much of a blessing that is um until i'd met my american um friends who are saddled with debt and i yeah. didn't have that so i could i i had some space room to maneuver and your your decision to go there how was it perceived by your friends by your family by people close to you? Mm. um i think my parents were quite devastated they would um so, so funny the whole my mother still uh she, she tells me she, she didn't sleep a wink the whole time that i was there which might be um hyperbolic on her part um and then my friends i, I actually i remember um when i was trying to decide uh, we'd all read this book called Behind the Beautiful Forever by Catherine Boo, which mm. is a great book about, about India, India right. Bombay, yeah. that I highly recommend if anyone is interested in um, good writing or India or poverty. And uh, the book reads like a, as if it were a novel. And then the author's note, she talks about how cause she has a like a, a illness, a physical condition, and she was trying to decide, should I should devote the next three years of my life working on this project, living in the slums? Am I suited for this? And while she's debating one night, she gets up in the middle of the night to go get a glass of water, and she trips and falls. There's a, like, a thesaurus on the floor. She trips over the thesaurus and breaks her ribs, I think. And the the lesson in this for her was that you can die doing anything. Mm -hmm. And I think perversely, that sort of was a kind of a guiding star for me. You can die doing anything. Do you think anything. that's true? Um, I mean, it obviously is true. Mm, but there are, you know, there are things, some things that are more dangerous than others. I think it's easier to do things when you don't know better. Right. I, I, I think I went because I truly didn't know better. And I think I stayed for so long because I, I mean, I went pretty much after school. And I think I conflated like a war zone living with being an adult. And I thought, right. oh, this is just being an adult now. And now I'm realizing, no, you, it's a, there are certain luxuries you can enjoy. like Because I know in, in say, Nairobi or Cairo, there will mm. be lots of, of young people relatively fresh out of college mm. hoping to become journalists. Mm. Were there others like that in Afghanistan? Or yes, but the massive advantage of Afghanistan is that it's just harder enough that there weren't that many. Yeah. And I think that was the calculus that I had made in my sure. head. Sure. And can we can we talk then about this this interest in writing, you know, magazine journalism, narrative nonfiction, however we would call it? Did you 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 mentioned earlier that that was a kind of reflection of your temperament? Mm. Did you think, or mm. were you, or was it? A, and you always to mention this negative thing: you didn't want to work for a newspaper, you didn't want to work for a wire. How were there kind of positive things pulling you towards it as well? Positive thing towards magazine. Yeah. Um, Yes, I'm a. Uh, right, yeah, I, the financially buoyant state of the magazine industry. Sure, and so. but that—that's the other thing. No, but honestly, like if you write for the Guardian, I think at the time, if I recall, they could pay you as low as three hundred or four hundred right. or maybe five hundred pounds per article, yeah. and so it doesn't make any sense for you to work days working on a story that could net you three hundred pounds sure. versus working on something for many weeks or months or. Um, in one financially ruinous occasion years and then you get paid thousands yeah. that just makes basics I mean I'm not that good at math but that mm. seemed pretty obvious to me as well I have like writerly ambitions yeah. I, I love reading fiction and um, I aspire to write it one day and so magazine reporting is actually a really happy sort of blend of yeah. investigative work which I quite like I have a I do have a, a part of me that is very um, uh, monomaniacal and then and then writing is important so it sort of made sense so can we that all does indeed make sense can we talk through this Guardian piece like in terms of from idea to, to pitching to the, the reporting process mm. you know how had you 
this was a long read. We'll put it in the show notes. But so, so for the show up in London, which was run at the time by Shane and presumed by Jonathan Shane, who, right. who we've had on the show. Mm. Uh, you he's know, wonderful. How, how? Yeah, he was. He's our second most popular guest ever. After ah. yeah, <laughs> he was for a while our first, but he was usurped. Um, <laughs> how did you go about a conceiving this idea, and then had, I mean, had you written at Magazine Scale before that story? Which story? The, the fortune teller yeah, story. Yeah, the fortune teller. No, I had I'd written one story for this uh, um, Toronto Life magazine. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So how did yeah how did this piece go about from conception to execution? Mm, mm, uh, I mean, I've always been interested in belief systems, mm. and inadvertently, what it ended up doing was using the story of the fortune teller to talk about the war, but actually, as a friend of mine, another great writer, Anand Gopal, who, whose book on Afghanistan everyone should read, he sort of rightly, acutely, uh, uh, accurately, sorry, pointed out that the while the article is about the war, it actually does not mention the conflict, mm. and... I, I don't think it doesn't. I mean, it's it's there. Like, it's it's uh, like ambient background noise, yeah. but but. And there's the bombing or the, the attack yes, at the end. Yes, that's right, right. That's right. Yeah. But it's not it's not very explicitly explicitly. Pardon me about the war, and I think it came from a place of wanting to tell stories that weren't just about like death and destruction sure. or like Afghans. They're just like us. I mean, w- there was an evening one time after dinner, a few reporters. We sat down and just wrote down like prototypes of articles that are written about Afghanistan. There's maybe like eight or ten. Right. It's all this new last year of Kabul. Like, there's a list, yeah. and I think uh, I think my ambition maybe was to try to sort of do something a little different. And had you had kind mm. of pre-existing interaction with this guy before you uh, wrote about him? Yes, if I recall, he was quite popular among interpreters who had previously worked with the American military who had then applied for these things called special immigrant visas to go to America and he became very well known because he had this like whole network yeah 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 so it was sort of a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing and what about um you know the process of pitching it then Mm. how did that work at the Guardian, yeah. Had you had you met Jonathan, for example, at this? Point? Um, this was a very peculiar, uh, atypical situation because Jonathan uh, was actually in my larger friend circle in okay. London. Okay. S- friends from back home in Canada, right. and so that definitely helped. Um, I don't think I knew him before they got to know him. Um, and was it? Was he quite? Was this quite? early in the kind of life cycle. I think he was one of the first stories they ran, yeah, Yeah. after he became the Long Reads editor, yeah. So how did you pitch it, in person or...? (sighs) Gosh, such terrible memory. I think I must have sent an email pitch and then I never heard back from him ever again. Okay. And then I was coming through, passing through London one time and then I think he took me out for uh, a drink or a coffee or something. Okay. And then we talked it through. Okay. And then he then in turn deputized his... um, Deputy editor David, David yeah, yeah. who is uh, yeah, he's my editor then, much yeah. more responsive on email, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's how it happened. I don't think Jonathan's like replied to an email. Since I mean, like I can't even talk about this issue because I think it's just I, there's no answer. There's no yeah. Can we can we talk about editors not answering emails? Oh yes, yes. Um, not answering emails. So, I mean, I think we, yeah. I, I, I mean, they do get a lot of mail. We should say they do, and so I try to be. Um, understanding because they're all, all of them are working under dress um i think it does help when you know them yeah <laughs> when you're when you're not like a disembodied email in an inbox but a real person and mm. i think that's why it's so important to cultivate real personal relationships with yeah. these people um okay and so then was that like a moment where you know you'd, you'd known this fortune teller and you kind of had to then like declare that you were writing about him how did you handle how did you let like let him know what was going on Oh, I mean, from right away. I mean, I'm, yeah. I introduced you introduced yourself as a reporter. But you'd met him before you were... Yes, but it was always in a professional capacity. Sure. Um, okay. And I think, I mean, if one thing that is, I think, confounding to people is like, why do you have to, why do we have to sit down for the like 37th time? Like that is confusing to people. Yeah. Um, but I think at some point, like I'd gone over so many times that 
it just it didn't even register for him and that's of course where you want to that's sure. the place you want to arrive at right i mean i was interested in, in reading it that it was it was written you know it's interesting because i've been doing this edit uh, this week an edit for another magazine where the, the line has been like more quotes more vocab more mm. you know speech and you know there was certainly it was very light on the speech i mean the, the prose was beautiful but it was it was narrative 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 and then later on there was a little bit of dialogue that, mm. that swept in were they were they kind of happy for you to take that quite narrative-driven, quite al- almost essay-like approach with it. Yes, I think earlier versions did have quotes and then yeah. in the smoothing out process, okay. it be narrativized. Yeah. Is that a word? Yeah, I think it's a word. Certain sections. Yeah, yeah. And, and what was the edit like Gosh. compared to edits before and since? Sure. Um, and again, this is with the broader context that, you know, obviously huge transatlantic differences in editing style, mm-hmm, although mm-hmm. the long read does tend to edit in quite an American mm-hmm, sense mm-hmm. And, and if, so forth. I mean, again, this was many years ago, so um, memory's not quite intact and clear in my head, but I do remember being very impressed that Jonathan would read the draft and then he had sort of like three or four or points that were... Jonathan or David? Shane and... Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he would have these like meta points that were actually really helpful for me in like reconceptualizing certain parts of the story because you know i mean this is a this is the editor's job you're sort of knee deep in whatever it is that you're knee deep in and this sort of voice of reason is speaking to you from like up atop the rabbit hole telling you what's important and what's not and i remember him being very good good about that and then in terms of you know when it ran Mm. did you feel again this is a question i always find issue with magazine writers like did you feel it kind of landed did it make impact did people Mm. read it were people talking about it or did it vanish into a black hole i've definitely had articles that sort of they're like pebbles that sink to the bottom of the river and this story i do remember um it doing well i'm using air quotes um people who no, I don't even know if it was traffic is about a fortune teller in Afghanistan, but it people I respected appreciated it and yeah. that was meaningful to me. Did it feel like a kind of professional arrival in some ways? It did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it did. And it, could you tell us a bit about, you know, just the mechanics of operating, maybe through this and then through the Kunda's speak piece, mm. which I wanted to talk about as well. Mm. You know, how much could you move around in Kabul? What were your methods of transport? You know, what? How could you voxport people on the street? Like, mm. what could you do, and what also could you not do in that environment? I mean, a lot of things I could do, I can't do anymore. I think right. expats now live a much more abridged life than I used to, and and I'm sure people from older generations would say the same. I when I first arrived, you could walk around, and then and then I took. Did it help? I mean, mm. that you. You you are Asian. Yes. Yeah. It, uh yes and no. Like anything, I, um, I, yes, I, I am of East Asian descent. Therefore, I look like a Hazara. Um, Would you be thought to be a Hazara? Yes. Yeah. If dressed a certain way and if I had the habitus downright, um, it it would help in you 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 blend in, but also you don't want to look like a Hazara where in a, in a region where Hazaras are being persecuted, which is like most of the country. Yeah. And so there were some uh, additional um uh dangers i guess associated with okay. <laughs> looking a certain look, looking like a member of the persecuted tribe and in transport how did that mm. work i so yeah I, I i could walk the first year and then i would take these yellow cabs did go, you have one like particular driver or so so that's the thing so it's so then it, it eventually i was forced to get a driver and and um be a bit more judicious about who i would you know, work with. And typically what happened was that when I was going into other provinces to work, um, the, my, my fixer would then hire like a trusted friend Mm. who also happened to have a car and I would sort of, you know, take his word for it and then go. What about language? How did that work? Um, well, a lot of places where you would go report are Pashtun areas. They speak Pashto and, um, I don't speak Pashto and I don't know a, a lot of people who do because it's an impossible language to learn. Mm. Very difficult, I should say, not impossible. Um, and even if you did, I think it would make sense to have someone who is a kind of a cultural broker when you're growing. Because it's, it's, it's really not even about the language. It's about, you know, is this person the son of someone that we know? Yeah. And so even, for example, there was a gentleman that I would often work with who I, I talked to uh, still quite often he's from the south and we were reporting in the east it, it was of no use to me that he spoke pashto 
So then we would have to hire someone who's from the region. And can we talk, uh, no, actually one thing before that. I mean, how, in terms of the amount of risk you were taking, how do you think it compared to what, say, the big staff reporters from, from AP or from Reuters were taking? And was it ever remarked upon? And now mm-hmm. that, you, you know, five or six years on, how do you feel about the kind of risks you were running? I mean, that's the very thing. I don't think you do these things when you when you know what you're doing, really. Um, I think at the time I thought I was making calculated risks. I'm yeah. using your quotes again. And so I, I did everything you could, but I could see how someone could go through that process and decide that it wasn't worth Did you have insurance? It. Yeah, always. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from who? From RSF? Uh, it depended, yeah. Some, and then, yeah, RSF, and then when, I think they've stopped offering that, and then I had somebody else, I okay. forget who, but yeah. And can we talk about the Kundas piece? So again, mm-hmm. we'll put it in the show notes of this investigation for the intercept on the bombing of the MSF hospital. You know, we got a real, very impressive piece of investigative journalism. How did, how did you kind of come to do that? And again, what was the, the process? You know, very different kind of story to the previous one. What was the process of reporting that like? How... The how is quite simple. It happens. In, it, that story unfolded for for me and for a lot of people in real time. Right? Mm-hmm. I was in October two thousand thirteen. I was in country. It happened, and I sort of just saw, after you arrived. Though. No, no, sorry, sorry, fourteen. I apologize. Okay, right. um, so then, uh, it, the, yeah. So the strike happened, and I saw how the American military um, reacted to the event, which was subterfuge, which is predictable. Um, and it was very clear to all of us that their sort of unofficial official approach to to this blunder would be to wait it out until everyone forgot about the issue. Um, and I had, I, I was already on assignment for the intercept to do another story about a drone strike. And when I was passing through New York that November, I mentioned this in passing to my editor, the great Roger Hodge, and he uh, said, well, we should do the story. Okay. And so then that was it. And then I worked on it for, I think it was like five months or something, and it came okay. out that the following April. And what were your interactions with the military like? I mean, I saw you ended up having like a, a phone interview with like the top general, <laughs> yes. right? Who just possibly being cashiered. Deeply unhappy. Yeah, but he, you know, they engaged eventually, or did it take? I don't think he wanted to answer that <laughs> phone yeah. call. I think that was a mistake on his part, maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't think he wanted to talk to me. And a lot of what much. the reporting sounds like is like, you know, a kind of huge constellation of people. A lot of them talking off the record. You know, a lot of. I mean, did you, did you go to Kunduz? Were you able to? Yes, do that? many times. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, how did you ever at any point think like this is not going to work? We're not going to be able to pull this together, or you're facing a lot of institutional. It's tricky resistance. because with these stories, like the platonic ideal is very clear, right? The platonic ideal is. You know, they had this um, internal investigation report mm. that had been redacted. I knew this copy existed. Yeah. I also knew that there were recordings of the pilots in the AC-130. Who ended up being disciplined, right? Correct. Yeah. So you, 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 you have these two sort of destined, you, you're trying to get there. Yeah. And so whatever you get, it will, you know, it, you'll fall short. And I actually remember putting together the copy and then sending it to my editor and thinking, this is like not this terrible there's no way they're going to run this. I have right, we, I haven't stood it up enough. Yeah, yeah. and then they were like, they were so pleased with it. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you kind of engage with the piece with this idea that the military and, and some of these, well, there's sort of two ideas. One that the Afghans present, which is like, we're trying to kill these people. It's absurd that once you go to a hospital, you can't. And that's obviously, you know, that that is a tension existed in all wars. But also this idea of like, even in a world of laser-guided munitions and aircraft, the, the kind of chaos that, that is entailed by these things, and the idea that like, you know, people do make mistakes um, and so forth. What do you think that there's? Do you think the culpability is is in the kind of cover-up, or the culpability is in like the fact that this stuff happens, or is it something that's just always going to happen? I think both. Of course, the cover-up, but also. I mean, the, which the military would argue otherwise, but also the fact that if you create a system where such mistakes are possible and quite mm. easy to make, I feel like that carelessness veers into the realm of culpability. Yeah. Is what what, what was the reaction after the peace run? From the well, from the you know the various constituencies, from the military, from. I mean, I, if, I similar to you, I think a lot of people within the military or or, or NATO independently of their employers congratulated um me or the yeah. intercept on the story um 
And then the U.S. military, I mean, I didn't <laughs> hear from them. And then it subsequently became very difficult to <laughs> engage with them. Yeah, did you feel that there was, a, there was, with maybe some of the press, a kind of transactional thing with the way the journalists were treated in terms of access and then... Exactly, exactly. Know. I mean, a lot of, effectively, what people do is they're stenographers for the, for the military. Yeah. And I think it yeah, helped. Yeah, yeah, and I think it helped initially that I had I hadn't really I didn't have a I didn't have priors I hadn't done much reporting on the military like yeah. in that particular way, and so maybe they didn't really know what to make of me, and then in turn that yielded more access than it yeah. should have maybe. And the experience of doing that for the Intercept, as opposed to like you, you know you've written for Big Legacy Media, written the New York Times Magazine, and so forth, was that different? Was it distinct in terms of access or editing or finance in terms of how you were paid? I mean, the Intercept is run on, as you know, um, Omadiar money. Yeah. So that was a huge bonus for me. There's the f- funds were such that I could really um, report it the way I wanted to, yeah. and I would, I'll always be grateful for that. And I think the Writing for the Intercept, you know, there are many editors who work there, but the thing that was helpful for me was that this particular editor that I had, Roger, he had come from Harper's, and so he had a certain sensibility that spoke to me, and so it sort of made sense. And how did you, did it, you know, you you kind of ascended the the respective rungs of the magazine market, like, at speed, right? You're kind of, you know, you're you're writing at the very top of the game quickly. Again, had, had by this point, the people who thought you were like a baby writer, were they now envious? Were they, I mean, how did that, how did that? work out i mean if they were envious i don't think they would have told me i don't know <laughs> right okay um yeah sorry I, what should i be saying Do, well, uh, whatever you want really <laughs> but i think you know you're 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 professional you, 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 you like advanced really rapidly you know did you did that feel that that was like a commensurate payoff for the, the decisions you've made or mm. did you i suppose like three three you know you're, you're like three years in it's going very well professionally did you feel like this is a place i want to be staying or did you feel like this is fucking dangerous. Like I can do another year in uh, Afghanistan yeah, specifically. Yeah. yeah, I think I would have stayed had I not uh, been forced to extricate myself for reasons that you know, which is that I ended up going to this writing residency. Yeah, yeah. Which like physically forced me out of the country. Which yeah. is where we met. We yes, exactly. Ago, yeah. Great place. Yeah. Um, no, I think I would have stayed there, stayed on for a very long time. And do you think that would have been the right thing? To no, 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 absolutely not. But I think I would have stayed on because I, I, I didn't I hadn't known I didn't know better. I didn't realize that you could it sounds so sort of um uh Pollyanna now, but I don't think it I, I don't think it was within my like world to think that I could do anything else. It was like inconceivable okay. to me. And I wanted to talk um about your kind of post extraction from Afghanistan and post Afghanistan life through through the kind of lens of two pieces. So the mm. first being the Kim Wall piece, mm. which which I actually read when it ran, so I didn't reread it today. And we should say for those who don't know, this is um, a, a Danish reporter who was murdered um, and who was who was a friend of yours, right? Who was murdered uh, while reporting a story in um, in Denmark or in yeah. And what was the experience of, of kind of bringing you know your professional chops as a reporter to a subject where you know you knew the subject to someone where there was that emotional connection was that something you deliberately wanted to do you wanted to kind of write your way through this or yeah i mean there's a great line in patrick radden keith there's a story about um i think lockerbie bombers Mm. bombing sorry and he he interviews this person who i believe lost his brother in the um the bombing and the character says something like is a character is a, a subject story as a, a reporter as well and he launches an investigation into what happened and he says that it was a way to sort of shirk his grieving duties is how he calls it okay and i think that's what it was for me as well did it perform that duty mm, you're just kicking the can down the road okay so you yeah. don't feel that you but or, it, it, it gave me something very practical to, to do, do in the moment and what did you come away, well, not find out, but what did you feel that you knew differently after you'd done that than before? I mean, that's the funny thing about these like lessons, right? They're often quite banal, like you, you do it and then the lesson is that you can do it. Right. Um, but I do remember after it ran, our common friend Tash, her, her asking me, or while I was doing it, or I forget when exactly the timeline was, but her asking you know, does this make you uh, more weary of the world? Do you not want to be in the world anymore? And did it? And no, the answer is no, because 
I think in this particular case, it he's such an anomaly. What happened right. is that it's not something you can draw lessons from. What do you think of the the kind of gender aspect? Was this a risk that female reporters face that male ones do not? I don't think we're targeted because we are women in these right. cases, but I think yeah, I think the danger is um, heightened. Of course, I mean yeah. when I. When you get into a car with, um, I mean, actually, this, this is a tricky thing to talk about, but, um, but a valid, there's know, a valid always, thing. yeah, there's always like a danger that when I say yes to someone who's giving me access, that like that might end up in some form of violence, absolutely. Okay. But I guess that my reasoning was that I don't want it to be her legacy that I don't do certain things because out of right. fear. Yeah, yeah. That makes no sense to me. It's irrational. Sure. Can we talk um, about the, uh, is it Fan Bing, <laughs> yes. Bing piece? So, you know, I thought it was very interesting and, and we're talking, we'll talk maybe a bit more about your kind of gear shift out of Afghanistan in a way. But this is this is China's most famous, um, uh, most famous actress who then, who kind of vanishes off the map in a tax avoidance scandal. And I was interested how this came about, you know, this is China, had you reported from China before? <laughs> no. And had you written for Vanity Fair before? No. So this was like a new, and this is sort of showbiz, like it's a new direction and I thought it was a great piece and, you know, it had, you know, all the kind of rigor and also some of the, like, the, the writerly touches that were very apparent in the other work. You know, I could see this, the, the line of continuation, but it was clearly a, a change of direction as well. Mm -hmm. Like, how did this, how does it come about you're writing a movie story for Vanity Fair? So after I moved back home, I had a meeting with Radhika home Jones. Is Canada? Sorry, uh, New York. I so this is after we were living in the snow. Yes, post-snow. Post-snow, I had a meeting. Actually, right after the okay. snow. Um, so yeah, we should spend it. May and I met while we were living <laughs> in some wood cabins in upstate New York in 2017. And we're now in another yes. similar environment. Uh, so we only meet on writer's residencies. But it's a pleasure. Um, and so, okay, so because I remember then you were like, I'm going to go back to Afghanistan. Yeah, or foolish, foolish notion yeah. to disabuse me, myself of. So I had, a, I had a meeting with Radhika Jones, who had just taken over the mantle at Vanity Fair. And had been an editor on the book review at the New York Correct. Times, right? Yeah. She's another wonderful editor. She uh, took a meeting with me and she asked me, what, what do you want to do now? And I told her, honestly, what I would so love to do is a celebrity profile. Okay. And I think it was coming from a place of, I would like to do something dramatically different. Yeah, yeah. Just use a different part of my brain or what have you. And then she went away. And then a couple, maybe weeks later, maybe, I receive a, a, a text and it says, um, if we send you to China, can you find Fan Bingbing? Okay. And I did you know who Fan Bingbing I was? I like vaguely could only because I had been at a dinner just the night before where people were talking about her. Okay. And so then I like look her up and she is yes, as you say, China's most famous celebrity yeah. who's gone missing. Like no one can find her. So like the hubris of like what could I possibly contribute to this yeah. to this um ongoing situation and so then This is when 2017? 2018. Okay. Yeah, over the summer. And I said, well, of course, absolutely. Okay. And then I frantically started doing this thing that you also know how to do or you do often, which is um, I sort of concentric circled outwards. Yeah, and yeah. so it was like, does anyone in my life, has anyone been to China? Yes or no? Does anyone speak Chinese? Like, oh, you have a cousin who has a, a, a roommate who dated someone who lived in great. Put me in touch. <laughs> And I just kept doing that, and then eventually. And it seemed because like you were like <laughs> off the plane, and then suddenly at this party in like this director's <laughs> spaceship-like yes. house, right? Yes, but that was. I mean, what was in, what's incredible is it confirmed for me the suspicion that I had already harbored, which is that everyone is like five, six degrees, degrees of removed. Not even. I think once you get to a certain inner circle, it's like four or five circles. So, but eventually, if you talk to enough people. Um, the, the beauty, I mean, this story seemed impossible to me in the beginning, but what, the, what I hadn't realized is that because she had been the reigning queen in the Chinese, whatever, film world for yeah. so long, that if you found anyone who had worked in that industry... After her, her brutal adolescence eating one bun <laughs> a day. <laughs> yes. I like that detail. Um, then, then, like, it was, everyone knew who she was. Okay. Yeah. But then she turned up. She did. And did that how... So, we, we again, we're putting the show notes, but so... Is it Fan Bingbing? Fan Bingbing. Fan Bingbing mm. goes missing. Mm. You're assigned to China to, on a mission to find her. But she then turns up. <laughs> yes. 
how what impact does that have such with mixed feelings <laughs> <laughs> before you before you had found her <laughs> when you like fan you've let us all down <laughs> exactly um and then the game became well but then she was still i think she sent like one mea culpa text or tweet or right. whatever and then was still sort of not talking to people and so then the the goal became trying to talk to her okay i mean were like other reporters on the story was it like, oh, a, like, was it like a all press the people pack? new york times cnn everyone okay yeah okay and did you feel did you like have a like magazine writer slight aloofness about the daily stenographers of who course. you weren't, weren't of part course. of i would look down on them <laughs> <laughs> um and how was it working in terms of like language and stuff how long were you in china for for that story i think i was there for december like a month. I remember, yeah, I spent Christmas there okay. alone in a hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I remember, um, yeah, I became like fast friends with like everyone who worked at that hotel. <laughs> and out of, I was, I, anyways, I mean, these are like meandering stories I don't need to tell here. But it was, it was, um, the thing I, I should also add though is that it was almost indecently fun for me. And Why? Because it wasn't like death and murder. Yeah, and, and it really surprised me. I mean, I had no idea that reporting could be this fun if okay. it doesn't involve worrying about being killed okay. or um, interviewing people who have had terrible things happen to them. Right. Mm. But would you want to do another celebrity profile? Ooh, mm, depend, depending on whom. Maybe I Only mean, if they've vanished. Yes, exactly. That is the key requirement. I, but I quite enjoy, I really enjoyed um, taking this like investigative approach to something seemingly silly a celebrity I think that's a really interesting thing because mm. like it's hard to do investigative journalism right and there aren't that a lot of people can't do it mm. or don't do it mm. but it's like a set of skills that you can like apply to anything absolutely yeah know? it was really fun and I mean I I did a lot of, I I, mean, I, ta- I think I talked to 100 people yeah I read like canonical all of whom claim to live next to her correct exactly yeah, yeah, at yeah. least half um <laughs> three I, doors down <laughs> And, you know, I did a lot of, like, reading fiction, nonfiction. I mean, I was really starting from scratch. And yeah. there's some, there's... This is a film. Really, <laughs> ex- something, like, really exhilarating about going from place of knowing nothing yeah, yeah. to a couple months later, very briefly, for, like, a fleeting second, being an expert in this tiny little thing. Being the fan correspondent. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I wanted to circle back to the whole finance piece. Mm. Um, it's interesting, it's come up a lot this week at the residency, as it always does. Um, but, you know, do you now make a living from your magazine writing? And is it a decent living? Uh, yes. And decent, that's a subjective term. I can pay rent and, yeah. mm, I don't know, I don't know, pay for lunch. And do you do any things. other work? Uh, no, but I I would like to. I really would like to. Okay, what kind of thing? Um, I don't know. People always seem to have some side hustle, and I would really yeah. love to get one. Okay. But I don't have one. But what I should also come clean on is that I have a um, I have a fellowship. Okay. I've always had one, one form or another, so that heavily subsidizes my. But what is that? Sense. That pays for like travel, or how does it? Work? I, I well, this year I have a fellowship that pays me a stipend every month okay that covers rent and living this is the nyu thing no that was last year this is um i have a fellowship with the lannan foundation the what lannan okay foundation okay and do you see that uh, that kind of thing where you're like on fellowships and stuff is that the way you want to continue it or would you like a staff writing gig i mean i would love i would love a real job if yeah (laughs) one's on offer absolutely okay and can we can we talk now about fiction mm. um i'm just thinking which time yeah we have we have seven minutes great uh so where you're you this this uh week have been working on fiction have you i was hoping to but i got pulled into um the dirty business that is journalism but yeah i would like to work on fiction and where does that is that a long-standing interest have you i was i was i came clean about all my unpublished novels mm. yesterday that i had tried to write mm. um you know, had you been trying to do this for a long time? No, Is it something no, you... not at all. Um, no, I think I have certain impulses that are maybe more conducive to fiction writing. I, I actually make it, I, making stuff up. Yeah, I mean, all the time. Just kidding. <laughs> I never make stuff up. Everything gets fact checked. Um, no, just the um, the desire to like write beautiful prose. Okay. And do you think there's mm-hmm. not latitude for that in, in non-fiction? 
Um, there is, and I think magazine writing is like a very happy place mm. from which you can do that for sure. Yeah. But I don't know. I I am one of those reporters who think fiction's a higher calling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I hear and you. there's something so moving about like fiction work that nonfiction can't quite arrive at i feel for me like the times when i've been really when i've had like transcendental experiences it's often as a result of like a poem or a play or a short story especially did you feel i mean something people non-fiction writers sometimes say about trying to write fiction is like suddenly that you know the handrail is gone right you can't like call someone up to find out what happened and that while in some ways very liberating is also Mm quite frightening it's terrifying and what i've realized is that people think oh both writing it's the same but actually non-fiction work you are two things one is i feel like i've arrived at a place finally where if i read my own draft Mm. if i read it and i can diagnose the what the problem is and i can introduce fixes yeah but i feel like with a a magazine magazine yeah very specifically um but with uh, with fiction, I just it either lands well or it doesn't, and okay. I don't know how to fix it. So, are you trying to write a novel? No, I, I I'm working on short stories okay. and um, a screenplay. Okay, interesting. Because I think short stories, you know, have a reform experiencing a renaissance, right? Mm-hmm. In that, you know, they were in the early 20th century, and then a period when they were absolute publishing death, and mm-hmm. no one would publish them. And like, do you are you writing them because do you think they're a good training ground no i'm writing them because it it's like it makes my soul happy okay that sounds valid yeah yeah and i think you mentioned also i don't know how much you can say about this but your mm. non-fiction book idea that you're yes that you're cooking how is that experience i don't know if you can go into details of, of what that's about at this stage um how does that seem like a more natural extension of the magazine writing muscle in some ways I mean, the thing that people tell you is that it's a common misconception among magazine writers that they can all write books. That the book is like a longer magazine article, and it, it just isn't at yeah. all. And that's something that I try to remind myself. Um, just because I know how to write a magazine story doesn't mean that I'm going to like write three of them and then turn it into a book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and do you? What is the kind of time frame for the book? Do you think? I mean, as soon as possible, always, right? That's not an answer. No, but I mean, I I don't know. I haven't done it yet, so I yeah, have no yeah, idea yeah. how long these things take. And on uh, you know where you're going to be basing yourself in mm-hmm. your life, you you live in New York mm-hmm. now. Do you think that you'll be remaining there for the foreseeable? Foreseeable, another word uh, that I don't quite know the answer to. <laughs> yeah, probably. You won't be going off back to Kabul. No, no. I mean, I do need to make a trip for an assignment, but I'm yeah. not planning on living there. And does it feel being both in New York, but maybe being in a kind of community of writers, uh, is that important? Does that make you has that, has that improved your quality of life? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my 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 dream state actually is being in a big fast villa like this, <laughs> and then being alone, but knowing that there are people that I like just kind of scattered about. On okay. the grounds. That's my platonic ideal. Um, <laughs> well, let's let's maybe just we we, we can uh, we'll, we'll talk about this more there. But the you know having met you and I on a writer's residency and having reunited here, what do you think that that residency environment um, that Gianni has so kindly welcomed us to here? What does that offer apart from like great food? I think um, solitude and community. Right. It's okay. Like the perfect combination. And you know, I mean, this is a, a, a something that I've been theorizing. I try to figure out why are these environments so wonderful. Yeah. And I think one crucial deep fact is that you're not wasting time trying to coordinate meetups with people. Yeah. But like talking to another person is very important sure. also for the work process. Yeah. And having these like de facto like 1 p.m. lunch, like 8 p.m. dinner. We should explain that. Yeah, we, we oh, declared so, that yeah. if, if, <laughs> if you didn't come at the right time, you wouldn't be fed. No food. Would, no food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think there's something really, really attractive to a modern person about submitting to these <laughs> strict <laughs> schedules. I'm so into them. Agency is completely overrated. I don't take them away from me. I don't want them. It's been interesting that, yeah, that the modicum of choice we've provided has been like three options <laughs> for food. It's led to chaos. I think there needs to be less choice. Um, yeah, no, it, it, it is interesting. And I, I mean, I, I certainly, um, yeah, that experience we had in America was amazing. And then when I, I came here and, you know, we spoke to Johnny and Johnny was receptive. And I think, 
um, yeah, I, I do think it is. It's almost a kind of weirdly monastic, but That's not. The best. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I think we should we should end there before we, before we gush anymore. But May, look, thanks for being uh, such a great guest on the podcast and wishing you all the very best with your various projects going forward. Thank you for having me. Hello, it's us again uh, with an update from ourselves. Ellie, what have you been? What have you been up to? God, I was trying to think of what to say on the way here. It's so early in the morning, I haven't thought about my life yet. We are doing this, yeah, at the brutal hour. Of I mean, it's not that early, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like almost nine a.m. The um, <laughs> Tonight, I'm going to the Mercury Awards, okay. which is um, I do know what um, that is. You do, okay? Thank yeah. God, I thought I'd explain that. Well, I'm excited to see Dave perform. I don't know who, who is uh, the UK rapper of the moment, the UK Kendrick Lamar. Okay. You did that seven-minute rap about question time. I thought you were the UK rapper at the moment, Ellie. <laughs> um, only, only in the these, shower. These <laughs> um, you're wearing a very bling watch, I have to say. Thank you to my boyfriend. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's because I'm thinking of my party attire later. Got my heels in my bag. Watch on. Okay. No, long, not yet made up. Uh, so yes, excited for that. What else have I been doing? Can't think. What about you? I've been in Italy uh, oh, at this have. writer's retreat, uh, which we talk about on the podcast with May, so you'll have heard more about that. It was um, really delightful, uh, very beautiful. Uh, I've also been, well, I was working like a dog when I was there turning around this magazine out of outside, but they're seemingly happy with it, which is good. What's and also uh, the French Mountain Guides exam. If I hear you talk oh. about the mountain, about the French Alps one more time, <laughs> you need to get off the Alps. It's your country, Ellie. That's true, it is, yeah. Uh, and also dealing with the sort of continuing shenanigans with my book. Did uh, you read some out at the retreat? Isn't that the thing that you all read out? We, we did work? a workshop every evening uh, where pe- people could do whatever. So some people read, other people just sort of talked. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. Did you get any feedback? I didn't read. Um, I spoke mostly about this magazine piece that I was working on. So, But yeah, it was, um, it was collegiate and friendly. Oh, <laughs> lots of nice wine and salami. There was very good food, although uh, I think as I maybe said on there, like we did spend about three hours a day eating, which quite right, which sort of impinged slightly on working time, <laughs> but that was that was fine. Um, anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. Me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And if you'd like to find us on social media, it's Always Take Notes on instagram and take notes always on twitter Uh, please do as always leave a review on itunes where you can also subscribe and if you fancy supporting our crowdfunding page that's on patreon uh, at always take notes many thanks bye